Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. My guest for this episode is Joanna Naden. Jo is a multitasker. She has written for prime ministers and celebrities, published her own novels for children and adults and teaches creative writing, first at Bath Spa and now at the University of Bristol where she's a senior lecturer. Jo is the author of the Penny Dreadful series and the Rachel Riley books, and we discuss the importance of funny books for children and her tips on how to write them. I think her partnership with Chris Hoy and the illustrator Claire Elsom in the Flying Fergus series is the model for celebrity publishing, so listen out. It can be done well. We discuss the habit of writing, the accountability of Zoom writing sessions in lockdown, highly recommended even now, and getting your book made into a BAFTA-winning TV show. Does it change your life? Am I talking to Jo as she lounges by her pool in the south of France? What are the average hourly earnings for writers, by the way? When we spoke, Jo's latest adult novel, The Talk of Pramtown, was about to be launched. I absolutely loved this book. It's set between the 1980s of The Royal Wedding and the late 1960s, telling the story of Jean, her runaway daughter Connie, and her daughter Sadie. When Connie dies, Jean takes her granddaughter back to Harlow in Essex, where Connie grew up. I think of it as a story of Essex, sex and secrets. It's heartbreaking, funny and true. Jo's prose is brilliant and her dialogue is spot on. It didn't get the launch it deserved because of lockdown, so do look out for it. But first, we went back to Jo's career as a children's writer. We recorded this episode in March 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, Jo. Hello, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, You're in Bath, aren't you? I am, on a beautiful sunny day. Oh, you lucky thing. I'm in very overcast South London, so I am quite jealous. Bath is one of my favourite, favourite places. Um, But you've you've written for adults and you've written um, YA books, which is how we got to know each other. Um, Joe All Alone, perhaps being, was that the biggest one in terms of um, commercial success? It's actually, it it certainly is in the sense, if you think about it in the sense of um, it got shortlisted for about 20 awards and it is now a TV drama, but not in terms of sales, not by a long, long shot. Um, Interesting. No, the Rachel Riley series, which was a funny, funny diary, also set in Essex. It was based on my childhood. That was way more of a commercial success than Joel alone has been. That's really interesting. And we can come back to funny and talk about Mm. that. And you've also done the Penny Dreadful series and the worst class in the world, um, more at the MG middle grade level. I guess. Yes, they are uh, chapter books, we always call them in teaching. They're sort of five to eight or seven to nine year old age bracket. Do you have a favourite age group to write for? Because you really have, apart from picture books, you've kind of spread the gamut of them. (laughs) I don't do picture books. I I find the it's like being on Twitter, the limit to word count I do struggle with somewhat. I'm quite a wordy person. Um, I I flip between them. I, I'm either writing a much longer adult novel and then once I've done that, because that takes up a huge amount of mental space and time, and usually then they're slightly more gritty. And then I love to write a five to eight series book because it's just you're just trying to make up funny things about poo and sick and stuff <laughs> like that. And it's such a joy to be in that world of bonkers seven, eight-year-olds for a bit having been in the heads of grown-ups for so long so I think I love writing adult and I love writing for younger children I don't enjoy writing YA novels so much 
anymore. In fact, I haven't since I wrote one with um, Tony McGowan. We jointly wrote Everybody Hurts. Oh, yes. Um, which was the last YA I wrote, really. And I not I can't imagine I'll write another because most of my, in fact, every adult novel I've written um, focuses on, yes, they're, they're adults. I mean, the Jean is in her 50s, but there is a huge chunk of the novel that is set when they're teenagers and I get to yeah. I get to have my fill of teenage kicks by doing that now for adults. It's lovely writing for kids who are just sort of starting to read on their own, isn't it? There's something really it, thrilling about that. It's absolutely and it's also I mean I have to admit part of it is because I really struggled when you you know when you, you obviously know when you write for children a lot of your um publicity is school visits and Going into a secondary school to talk to 13-year-old girls is as terrifying now as it was when I was 13 going into secondary school. I found I was to the point of being sick before I had to go on and do it. So I stopped (laughs) doing it. I stopped doing school visits for my YA novels, whereas going into a school to talk about sick to eight-year-olds is an absolute joy. It's, It's just... They ask the best questions and they're so enthusiastic. And even with teenagers, oh God, I love them because they're fascinating and they could be enthusiastic, but by God, they will not let you know that. So it's, um, yeah. yes. Oh, I remember the first time I, because I was okay with, with year sevens. They, they, they've still had that they've kind still of got that. Yeah. polite smiles on their faces. It was lovely. And year eight's kind of okay. And then I did my first talk to year nine. So I, I was know. like, what? happened there because the the straight impress me face uh was really quite scary but luckily my stepdaughter was a year nine at the school I was talking to at the time and she said oh no it's lovely no they really liked you they, they thought it was great <laughs> it was like, but they did not let me know <laughs> no. um, yeah year fives and sixes are gorgeous they're the best people that I've spoken to definitely um so you've you've mixed it up a lot and and I was really interested when you said that your your best commercial books were the Rachel Riley series which again I really loved uh but they they're not the ones that were sort of put up for the awards by the sound of oh, things oh gosh no funny books don't don't get put up for awards um they did get put up for I mean it, well they got shortlisted for queen of teen every year pretty much but that was obviously a specific award for um a specific kind of YA book yeah there's the Roald Dahl prize was a joy when that was introduced because that was there purely to reward funny books just like we do have the lollies prize now which does the same but it was you do not find funny books on the Carnegie long or short list and in fact there was a bit of a hoo-ha recently someone it might have been Frank Cottrell Boyce who called this out and said it's Mm. really isn't it about time that they were honoured because they are no less difficult to write. They are no less important or widely read. They're probably more widely read. And certainly when I'm, I mean, maybe not so much in the worst class, but when I've written all my middle grade books like Joel Alone and Billy Wilde and Birdie Jones, they they are funny, but at the heart of them, there is a there are issues. And I think you can sometimes reveal them in much starker, more shocking ways by couching it all in the funny and then when when you get to that point it's like a real whoa that's quite didn't see that coming and that's how I that's what I think Frank Cottrell Boyce does who is a a huge hero of mine and that's what I try to do 
Yeah, I I agree. And and also, I mean, even if they're not actually um, addressing deep themes, which often they are, but even if they're not, children need to laugh. Oh, I mean, God, really yeah. need to laugh. And and to attract perhaps non-readers even to to the book world. It's so wonderful if if you know they can read something and get a belly laugh out of it. And, yes. And want to read more. Um, I've seen classes have Maz Evans read her Who Let the Gods Out series to them. And it's it's just wonderful watching children rock with yeah. laughter. It and is, I, yeah, I'm... it amazes me that it doesn't get rewarded in, in prizes and that kind of thing. <laughs> but that is the joy of going in to do school visits. And I did my first, because the worst class came out last year and obviously right at the point when schools were not open at all. So I did my first school Zoom visits a few weeks ago and got to read some out to them. And to see them properly laughing along was just an absolute joy I love that I love that feeling and again that's why I love going into primary schools because when I went into schools to do the Rachel Riley diaries which are funny books if you read them to a bunch of 13 year olds and it's dead dead when you finish the book it's like being it's like dying on stage as a stand-up comic it's mortifying so they're laughing inside oh god I hope they were So how do we do it? I know that this is something that you that you teach very kindly. Um, do you do you have tips for people who are interested in writing funny? I've been. I often try to think about this. It's I. My first tip for anything, actually, whether whatever it is you want to write, is just read, read, and read, and read. For me, it's reading goes in, writing comes out. It's impossible mm. to write from the raw as if you know if you haven't so I read I grew up on funny books I didn't read the classics as a child I read Dr Seuss I then read Roald Dahl that I found there was a copy of um Eric Morecambe of Morecambe and Wise he wrote a brilliant book called The Reluctant Vampire which was probably for about sort of seven to nine year olds and I got that one out of the library so much they banned me from getting it out any more <laughs> times and it would make me howl with laughter and I I grew up with a sense of comic timing, I think. It also, it sounds, oh, it's such a cliche. I was bullied at school. And um, one of the ways to get around that is by being funny. If you can make your assumed adversaries or adversaries laugh, then they stop being so threatening. Mm-hmm. So I I learnt to... Not not to tell gags as such, but to be clever and sarcastic with everything I said. And so I suppose my tip is not to be bullied. That's a rubbish <laughs> tip for everyone. <laughs> but I suppose it is to plunder your own life. What made you laugh as a kid? Um, also, it, it really helps having children. I mean, I, I only have one, but she has always been absolutely hilarious and there's now I mean Penny Dreadful is about her and her best friend that's an entire seven book series I've managed to get out of having a child um I also find huge humor in the in the everyday stuff again as Frank Cottrell Boyce does there is something just innately funny about wagon wheels the biscuits that they are funny things in the way that say cookies which is the American version when they translated Penny Dreadful they're not. They're just not funny in the same way. And yeah. I find that kind of the mundanity, I find everyday life just hilarious. 
one of the, the repeat things in the worst class in the world is the, the misuse of the world literally by small children. They literally yes. their heads <laughs> are going to explode. And also that endless, yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. And it's just funny. That is funny because they do it all the time. It's the truth of it as well. I think that's what makes it, it funny. We all recognise we all recognise it and are embarrassed by having done it, probably. Cool. I, I also wanted to talk to you about um, a series that, that you've done recently, which, again, you know, is, is a very enjoyable chapbook sort of series, which is the Flying Fergus series about a young boy and his magical bike. Um, and I particularly wanted to talk to you about this because you write it with Chris Hoy, um, and the illustrator, whose name I can never remember, which is terrible of me. Claire Elsom. Claire Elsom. And I came across this. I was one of the, the literary festivals and you appeared as a threesome to talk about yeah. your book. And the audience was full of women of a certain age, i.e. mine, <laughs> <laughs> who were there for Chris, I have to say, um, and and their children who were very much there for the books. And Chris talked about how he wanted to inspire people to ride and about his childhood and about how his childhood inspired the books. And Claire was busy live illustrating and you were talking about, you know, the nuts and bolts of writing one. And I loved that because it the result has been books that are, that are beautifully crafted and very engaging with a amazing celebrity on the cover who's going to bring kids to books and I wish that that was the model for the way celebrity writing was done was it was it, did it feel quite unusual to you when when that was the sort of the proposed way of working I suppose it did because I'd I ghosted for I mean ghosting was my job effectively when I was in politics that's what I did I wrote for other politicians my things that I'd written have appeared in every broadsheet paper under various ministers names I wrote speeches as well you're I, I'd spent all this time being and quite happily being the sort of the invisible the invisible girl in the background um so I did was... that once you know on the common agricultural policy about <laughs> 25 years ago yes and I was told I was getting a bit too carried away and I had to stop putting my own ideas in oh <laughs> and god put the ministers in yeah trying to get ministers to do jokes was always excruciating because I loved funny and obviously not all of them do but um but yeah I'd, I mean I'd done it before so it was it was strange and brilliant to do it like this because it had come at a time when there was a lot of a big hoo-ha over um Zoella's book I think which had been mm. her first book which had been ghosted um by a friend of mine actually um yes and it had been it, she'd effectively claimed it was her and it, it wasn't um and that is the model for for many many books is is that they claim them as their own but the fact, one of the first things that Chris said to me when we sat down we met in a um, in somewhere in the city in London when we first met each other he said I'm not going to pretend to have written these no one will believe me which actually Good having man. spent <laughs> well having spent all these years working with him is actual I, I, you know and he has now written his own book has and he? he awesome. yes um, it's it, it's it's called something about being awesome I think as well um, <laughs> and it's about being um, believing in yourself and he is genuinely a brilliant writer and he was 
he is so full of ideas he is because I was quite skeptical I'm absolutely not a sports person at all um and when I was first when the job was first mooted I pretty much turned it down and until my agent told me who it was it's <laughs> like oh it's Chris Roy, okay. it, but I can't even run for a bus I'm not a sporty person I know nothing about cycling um other than I've got my own rickety bicycle that I take along the canal every so often um but then we met and clicked brilliantly and he is a very very clever um astute wordy person he's got a wicked sense of humor and so working with him on this the ideas and and basically it's but it is sort of vaguely based on his childhood um so the bulk of it is his it's it's just the writing up of it almost was my bit but then it would go to him for him to cross the writing bits that were to do with cycling details yeah. out and say that doesn't happen like that and have to explain it in greater detail and <laughs> yeah but it was the whole process and working with Claire as well it's it's just it's a joy and it's an absolute joy to be able to go and talk about that to kids to talk about the importance of teamwork and also because I think so many of them assume that a book is one person's thing, but it takes, mm. you know, God, I mean, as you know, it takes so many people to make that book what it is. So we talk about that process as well, about all the, the editor's jobs, the agent's jobs, everyone's job who goes towards making something brilliant. And Chris would talk about all the racing team that go towards making him look amazing because it's not just a one person thing obviously he has that talent and he has that determination but it's also thanks to loads and loads of other people that he got where he was that is so lovely yes i'd it it does frustrate me i guess some of the time when a celebrity book comes out and particularly when it's for children and it might lead children to to feel bad about themselves if they're thinking golly you know this person can be let's say an Olymp olympic sports person and and just pick up writing in their spare time and do it to this amazing level um why can't i and in fact what happened was you know somebody went to university and studied this stuff and then did it for 20 years and yes. wrote 20 other books that didn't work and refined their craft and that's why it's as good as it is and no this you know this olympian couldn't just do it like that and and what i think what you three are, as well as everything else are telling people is actually you know when when you really want to do something you do have to work hard at it it does Absolutely. take time you do have to develop your own expertise um and we can share and we can collaborate but we can't automatically pick up each other's thing some people can but it's rare but uh, it's, I, just, I, I really it, like that yeah and it was i mean that was one of the key messages about fergus as well you know within the books as well that it's not Yes, having a um, having the talent is is important. Having something within you that means that you you're built for sport or that you have that um, innate love of words about you. But if you don't practice, you don't get anywhere with it. And he used to mm. say to me, if I hadn't, he used to practice something like seven or eight hours a day. And he said, and if I didn't, I'd just be a fellow with a fancy bike. <laughs> and it's that it's like you don't pick up the violin and play it for half an hour a day and expect to be incredible at it you you practice and you practice and you practice and it is the same with cycling and it's absolutely the same with writing for me I write 
and always have done um, every day, whether, I mean, and I don't just mean writing books, I don't do that every day, but I'm always, every tweet that I tweet, every Facebook mm. status, and I, as you know, I live on Facebook and Twitter, <laughs> I think about the words. I'm thinking about, yeah. can I get the power of three into this tweet? Can yes. I use assonance? I'm, it's a constant thing because it's all practice. Yeah. And the more you practice, the more it becomes muscle memory for writing. Absolutely. I mean, I'm often thinking, do I put a full stop in or not? What what kind of register am I going for here? What generation am I speaking to? <laughs> oh, am I God. speaking to people who will think a full stop is rude or will think it's rude not to put one in? Um, I find yeah. that fascinating. <laughs> and I know people deride it, but I, do, I absolutely see it. And I see it from my daughter's point of view. She's 17 and the, things like that matter whether yeah. or not you use capitals, whether or not you use full stops. And it's, yeah, I, it's all, I'm not one of those people who holds on and says, but this word means exactly this and we can't change the meaning of it. It's language evolves and grows and I'm fascinated by how it does. I love seeing the difference in word use and um, lexicon between the generations. Oh, same here. And I mean, I keep talking about this, but one of the writers I'm enjoying at the moment is Mick Heron. And I love the way he plays with grammar, particularly. I mean, it, it, when you read it, it's, it is impeccable, um, but often he stretches it. And you can just imagine he, he writes something that your English teacher would have put a red line under, you know, you can't repeat these words here. And actually you can. <laughs> and it gives the phrase so much more muscularity and resonance. It's amazing. So yeah, I love it when people just do that makes me very happy um and I think I saw you this morning by the way talking about writing every day because because I've just joined this this thing where um you it's what I call a shut up and write session yeah um where you you just go on and um what well, you used to be I suppose you might go to a cafe or a library in the olden days and um and just sort of um so everybody sets up their computer and this weird thing of being able to concentrate when you're surrounded by other people concentrating. Um, it's wonderful. And I, I hadn't realised, I'm so late to the to the programme, but that um, Zoom has enabled this to happen more widely. Um, and people can just create Zoom sessions for, yeah. for 100 people or whatever to just all sit around not talking to each other for an hour. I got so much done. So did it I. It was great. It was my first session today as well. And it was it was normally I'd just be watching breakfast telly at that point yeah. and thinking, oh, I should get on the step machine. And instead I sat down and even though obviously you're not looking at the Zoom screen because you're on your writing screen. You can't even see the Zoom screen, screen. exactly. And them. nobody's talking. It no, has no effect. No whatsoever. effect. And yet I felt in the same way that I write better when I'm in a cafe surrounded by other people than I do mm. when I'm at home. I felt not pressure, but I felt an impetus to yeah. write and I've I I got on and wrote and it was a real kick to have by nine in the morning got down about 500 words it's like wow that was easy enough it's amazing isn't it so I mean if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking how do I join one you you can just set one up you can be the person yeah. um you know all you need is a zoom link and some mates who want to do the same thing and you just pick a time of day and off you go I thought it was wonderful yeah highly recommended um Next question, Joe Naden. Yes. What is it like to have your book turned into a BAFTA award-winning series? <laughs> well, the BAFTA bit obviously was much later, but having it—oh gosh—having it turned into a TV series was 
it was one of the most frustrating and also brilliant things that's ever happened to me. It's frustrating because as things things get optioned quite a lot. Books get optioned to be made into stuff a lot and it almost never happens. Mm. And this had got to the point where it had been optioned and it's option, it was optioned before it was published actually. It got picked up wow. in a, and then, yeah. Mm. So, someone from the production company was in a meeting at Hachette to look at something else, which I think they didn't like. And my, I'm lucky that my editor was in there with the manuscript of Joel alone. He said, you might like this instead. And he liked it so much. He rang me up almost crying, um, saying how much he wanted it. He was the guy who'd made um, Tracy Beaker. Oh my and goodness. I know. So I, it's like, okay, yeah, that's like TV royalty <laughs> or children's TV royalty. Yeah. Um, and, but then it all just went dead for two years, at which point the option was almost up. And so I emailed my agent and said, yeah, this isn't happening, is it? And she said, yeah, probably not. I'll just email to check. And then the email came back saying, no, the BBC greenlit it last week. <gasps> so it went, it went ahead and then it all started happening very, very quickly i um i got invited to uh the table read which is a brilliant thing where they all meet in a it was in a church hall in soho and i got so just to... skipping back a bit they mm. hadn't asked you to do the screenplay had they given you the option or had oh, you said you didn't want to i oh, know i begged to be let to do the screenplay. i begged and begged um, and they ummed and aunt. To be fair, they did actually at least make it look like they were thinking about it. And then they said, okay. uh, no. no. And they brought on board <laughs> um, Guy, but who was already a BAFTA winning screenwriter. And when I saw, they gave me editorial um, rights, though, I guess. Mm-hmm. And when Guy sent his scripts through, it was like, oh, that's why. Because it is, you know, I have... I've written speeches, I did a degree in drama, I, I thought I knew what I was doing, but when you're writing for the screen, it is, it's all about, it's visual, it's all about being visual, it's not just about the words, the dialogue, mm. and he'd come at it from such different angles and thought of such different things, I thought, oh, this is, yeah, I've got, I'm an absolute newbie when it comes to this, and I'm so glad that they gave it to Guy and didn't let me do my own version because it would not have been as brilliant as guys was at all um so i did see i did see the scripts before i changed a tiny little bit of language here and there but almost nothing almost nothing they were so good and um yeah and then we all met in we met in london and i got to i that was i can't tell you how mind-blowing it is to... I can't imagine actually I, I sort of could, could almost get there but but it must be extraordinary to have people embody your yes. imagination completely I met and they were nothing the cast was absolutely nothing as I had imagined them and yet when I met them it was like yeah you are Joe you are absolutely my boy and it was this kid who'd lived in my head for years and suddenly there he is in front of me, this sort of scrawny teenager from Nottingham. And, oh, it was, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. And also um, the guy playing Otis I'd been a fan of for a long time. He was in Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels many years ago. Ooh. So to have, and then for him to come and play Otis, who's this just wonderful, um, Ash's grandfather. Yeah, that was a bit, yeah, I was like, yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> actually to be there and it was yeah it's 
an absolutely wonderful feeling and I'm I didn't sadly get to go to the filming of it it all happened very quickly and it was like can you come to um Belfast tomorrow because they filmed most of it in Belfast not in Peckham where it's set and it's like well I'm in France and I you know I've planned this holiday for a long time <laughs> and I can't you know, when you're, I'm going to, it sounds like I'm pulling out the single mother card, but you can't change things. You can't do yeah. stuff like that at the drop of a hat. It was, I had to take my daughter with me to go to London in order to be able to go to the table read because otherwise I'd be leaving her at home like Joe had been left all alone <laughs> in the first right. yes. thing. The same reason I couldn't go to the BAFTAs. I couldn't leave her alone overnight. She was, you know, she was not young enough, sorry, not old enough to be left home alone so I missed I miss out on a lot of those things but it was I did get to go to BAFTA to watch a special screening of it oh lovely for the women in it was for a special um women in um film and television um sort of thing because it had been an almost entirely female crew that worked on it oh yeah wow. it was just yeah it, it's been an absolute thrill to see that and to see it on on the screen and but it was really the most, the strangest thing of all was when I, I don't tend to feel upset about, I write a lot of upsetting things and Joel alone is, is got some gritty and, and, and sad stuff goes on in it. But when I'm writing it, all I'm thinking about is, will this make the reader cry? Will it make them empathize? And I'm not feeling that myself when I'm doing it. Yeah. But when I saw what I'd done to Joe and he's, you know, if you don't know the book, he's left, um, his mother runs off with her boyfriend, Dean, to go on holiday to Spain, what she thinks is holiday. It's actually drug dealing. He's left home alone and everything, you know, he runs out of toilet paper. He runs out of food. So he starts to, he eats a very um, old curry that's been sitting in the fridge for weeks. He gets horribly ill. And seeing him, this 13-year-old alone in that state of illness was just absolutely distressing for me and I thought oh my god I did that to him that's my fault that he's suffering yeah and it was a very strange strange and upsetting thing well I did read the book and I thought you were very mean sorry <laughs> that but that's how literature works yeah um yeah how fascinating that that you could engage with it kind of more when somebody else is doing it rather than when you're behind the pen just making it happen yeah um now, you don't have to answer this, okay. uh, but people will be curious. Did it financially change your life? Oh, my God. You have got to be joking. No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that might be the answer. Not in a... I mean, it was... the. the you do get some money. It was welcome, but this is TV. We're not talking Hollywood. Um, mm. So I did get enough to pay my mortgage for, for for a couple of months, but that's literally it. It has... The book hasn't even earned its advance out, so it oh, no, isn't that it, mad? I know. Wow. Um, no, it's not. It's not life changing in that sense. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see your creation come to life like that. But if I, if I was writing, if I was doing what I do solely for the money, I mean, I'd be, I'd be mad. All writers would be because the yeah. average. The average hourly pay for a professional writer, so that's someone who actually does it for a living, they're getting paid to do it all the time, is £5.73. That is less than the minimum wage. I mean, I am 
happily mm-hmm. earn slightly more than that, but not to a point where I can I I can't I can have just that as my income. I have a day job. I I lecture as well. It's I wish it was life changing, um, but it's not a lottery win. It's just a lovely thing to happen. <laughs> well, that neatly brings me to the to the last thing really that I wanted to talk to you about because something that we both do is um, is teach and talk about creative writing and try and help um, aspiring writers, pre-published writers who want to get to the next level. Um, and of course, you do it at Bath Spa University um, yes. on a on a sort of full degree course. I've, I've just done it as a visiting lecturer on sort of ten week courses. Um, I had an interesting experience with an Italian journalist, I think, last week, and I was talking about this podcast actually, and she was saying, "Ah, but um, you you must write from your soul. Um, you can't." learn anything and and you mustn't because otherwise it doesn't have any soul so there there can be no benefit and um you know I found myself (laughs) answering the best that I could um I have my own thoughts but may I put it to you um why why do we do I mean I have to say I'm somebody who didn't do a creative writing course myself I did a I did a a screenwriting course funnily enough um a a sort of you know again it was a 10-week thing um years and years ago but I didn't do one so why why do we do this and what do we expect students to get out of it um I'm gonna take um umbrage at that Italian journalist first of all and say you can't teach talent obviously and you can't and there is soul in writing because you're writing you're bearing a little part of your soul every time you write and what what you write about is that bit that's that's the soul side of it but how you do it can absolutely be taught craft can be taught it is you can teach structure you can teach voice you can teach someone why you would move a speech tag so that's he said or she said to the middle of a longer piece of dialogue mm-hmm. because it backloads the sentence so that the whole dialogue pops you can teach these things absolutely and there is science behind it which is why I'm constantly pushing Into the Woods by John York and the science of storytelling by Will Storr onto my students because psychologically story functions in a very specific way and that's why stories are structured how they are and I, I know I I know it can be taught because I watch it happening on a weekly basis with my students, watching them grasp how rhetoric works on us in terms of releasing drugs in our brains and why having three things in a list is so important. And you see them get it and you see then you see them do it in their work. Yes. And the the change that it makes, and you think, yep, yeah, I, I help them do that, and it's an absolute joy to see that nothing can replace I think reading obviously yes. which is why I do think creative writing at undergrad level should be taught alongside English literature I don't yep. think you can separate the two but absolutely it is a craft that can be learned and honed and of course taught yeah I mean I agree I I put it to people as um it's it's a bit like recipe writing in a way in that it's possible absolutely possible for somebody to be a self-taught chef they do have to taste a lot you know in the way that we we have to read a lot um 
but but there are recipes that work you know like a cake yes. recipe having things in in certain proportions um just creates a better cake than when you don't use those proportions and that is something that has been learned over time um, from the Greeks upwards and yeah we, we can I feel we can speed people up yes on that it's journey. exactly that it helps them get there quicker because I didn't do a creative writing course I gave up English at O level because I couldn't bear it I couldn't bear the picking apart of books when all I wanted yeah. to do was was read George's Marvelous Medicine under the desk <laughs> but I learned because I absorbed story and I all I cared about actually really was words and which is why I loved writing speeches as well and I it wasn't till I started thinking about teaching writing that I even worked out how structure worked or even Same understood here. <laughs> how re- rhetoric worked I didn't study speech writing I just did it yeah because I listened to enough speeches and I'd read enough um rhetoric to to have absorbed it so it was innate but we are speeding that process up for people yeah I mean I had a lot of trial and error I had 10 years of trial and error you know I wrote at least a million words that never got published I'm sure it was more than that um because you know I would I would do something and then have to pick it apart to see why it wasn't working I I could tell that it wasn't working because I'd read so much but I didn't know why it wasn't working and and until I did it, you know, the 11th way or the 12th way or the 20th mm. way and that way worked. And it's, oh, OK, it's like that. Um, so, yeah, I think we can speed people up. But if they if they don't read and, and if they don't have something to say and that innate talent, we can't we can't give that yeah. to them. It's the having um, something I, to say is important. That's why you write, isn't yeah. it? Because you've got an opinion on something, a view of the world. So, yeah. And I, I do think that, you know, in every class that I see, um, everyone brings the same joy and passion mm. and dedication to it. But probably only two of them will ultimately do something with it that's commercial, if that. Um, and, you know, we, we don't know which two that's going to be. Um, <laughs> and I always tend to think it's going to be the two who do it the longest without giving up, probably. Um kind of as it was for me not necessarily the best two because perhaps the most talented woman in the class is going to decide to do something else eventually um but the most persistent one may may keep going until she gets there that's my theory yeah and actually john york yes into the woods so fascinating coming from a screenwriting background and i'm gonna gonna plug another podcast now but i love listening to the bestseller experiment yes and and he was on that and it's it, it, that particular episode is just so lovely. Um, him talking about how he came to write Into the Woods. But I particularly love, love him saying that um, his most successful students may be the ones that he taught before he fully understood what he was doing himself. <laughs> uh, when he couldn't tell them about the midpoint because he hadn't worked it out yet. Um, so they were all kind of working, working on it together. It is a joy when you, yeah, I love, I still love reading about the craft of writing and having those wonderful oh my god that's it moments when you realize why something works so brilliantly and my favorite bit in Into the Woods is when he talks about how you get that Eastenders when you finish (laughs) the chapter how you sort of (laughs) engender that moment in and it was so clever and and it's such a readable book as well it is and which I suppose um it's him practicing what he preaches as well. It's yeah. page turnability, isn't it? And um, you, you've got to get people tuning into the next episode of EastEnders and you've got to get them wanting to read the next chapter. And he's very good at explaining how you do that. Um, 
Well, having said we need to get people to, to want more, I think we've probably <laughs> reached the end of our time. Um, so I'm not going to get a chance to talk to you about writing speeches for the Prime Minister. Um, but thank you very much. It's been lovely to catch up, um, even from far away. You too. It's been a lovely, it's been a joy. to. I hadn't realised it had gone so quickly. I could jabber about writing for hours. <laughs> yeah, it's been really good fun, Joe. So thank you. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Pre-Published. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at Pre-Pub Podcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com, or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com. <laughs>